0: About ten years ago, a friend of mine uh, gave me a poem and I liked the poem so well that it hung in my closet every day as a reminder to me of something that I should be very active in doing. And a couple of years ago, I was doing some spring cleaning and I thought, it's time to take this poem down. But nonetheless, um, it's a very good poem and I want to read it by way of introducing the last two verses in James. It's called My Friend. My friend, I stand at judgment now, and I feel that you're to blame somehow. On earth, I walked with you day by day, and never did you point the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory, but you never did tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safe to him. Though we lived together on the earth, you never told me of the second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. You told me many things, it's true. I called you friend and I trusted you. But I learn now it's too late. You could have kept me from this fate. We walked by day and we talked by night and yet you never showed me the light. You let me live and love and die. You, You knew I'd never live on high. Yes, I called you friend in life and I trusted you through joy and strife. And yet on coming to the end, I cannot now... Call you my friend. Now, the words in the last two verses of James chapter five really convey the idea in this poem. And ladies, I know, I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, God is sovereign in salvation. Yes, God is sovereign in salvation, but that does not negate our responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, or to pursue others who have wandered from the truth. Now, James puts it this way. Look at the last two verses. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Now, we're just going to see two things this evening. First of all, we're going to see a concluding charge, a concluding charge, verse 19, and then lastly, a concluding promise. So you have a concluding charge and then a concluding promise in verse 20. What's the concluding charge? Here it is. Brethren, if any of you are wandering from the truth, someone convert him. Now, let's stop right there. Remember in the introductory lesson, I brought out the fact James wrote this epistle because he was concerned about a group of Jewish Christians. He was watching their conduct at the Passover in the sanctuary, and he was saying some things are not adding up. You know, you guys claim to know Christ, but some things are not adding up. And so he's been writing throughout this whole epistle to to challenge them, to test them. He wants them to test themselves to see, are they genuinely in the faith? James is aware that many of them are probably deceived. Many of them are not doers of the word. They come to church and they audit, but they do not go out and obey. And so what he's doing here, he's charging those that are genuine believers to pursue those among them. Did you see the word there? Among them whose faith does not measure up or whose faith might be suspect. Essentially, this is what he's saying. Hey, you guys go out and convert those who are proving to be false. Love them enough to warn them. Or as Proverbs 1130 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. And so, ladies, really, this ultimate statement ties it all together. It lays responsibility on the church as well as delivering an encouraging promise. So he starts out by saying, brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth. Now, with this word, this word, brethren, I didn't count the times, but he has said it several times. He's just talking to them. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth. Ladies, notice the word, if any of you among you. Your translation might say among you. You know what he's saying? If there are any in your local assembly. He's not talking about those outside. If there are any among you that are fellowshipping with you, go after them. Now, what does he say means mean when he says they're erring from the truth or your translation might say wandering from the truth? Well, it refers to those who are among us who have strayed from the truth of the gospel and its responsibilities. The wanderer needs to be brought back. Now, it's interesting, this word wander comes from the Greek word for planet, and they tell us in biblical times what they would do, and I'm sure some of you, I don't know, I don't do this, I don't have a telescope, but actually what they would do, they would watch the skies, they would watch the stars and the planets, and they would watch, the I think it was the stars that would deviate or wander away from the planets that We're fixed in the heavens. And so what James is saying here, he's using this word to describe someone who wanders away in the midst of believers who are firm in their devotion to Christ. They wander away. Now, ladies, this wandering is not just doctrinally. It could be morally. It's someone who is wandering from not just doctrinal truths, but also a godly lifestyle. And, you know, it really goes together. Do you know what you believe dictates how you behave? Have you ever thought about that? Your doctrine, whatever your doctrine is, whatever you believe about the Bible and what it says, what you believe dictates how you behave. It does. Remember Paul said about Demas, he forsook me. Why? Because he loved the present world. He loved the world. That was a moral deviation, moral falling away. But then he forsook paul and the apostles and the doctrine alexander he's another one that paul mentions he said alexander the copper the coppersmith did me much evil the lord reward him according to his work he deviated from the truth and you know we see this today we were just talking tonight Um, pam brought me an article about rick warren and some of the things that he's come out with publicly he's wandering from the truth he's He's making statements that are wandering from the truth. But I listened to his Easter message the other night on Fox News. And, you know, what he believes about the gospel makes sense. And that's that's how it'll flesh out in what he believes morally. It goes hand in hand. There was no gospel message. And he's just one example. We see men in leadership soften their standards. They soften what they believe and how convenient for them. then it fleshes out in their life. Jeremiah has a warning to those shepherds. He says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Now, notice the object from which they're wandering. Notice what James says. They're wandering from the truth. What is that? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus Christ in fact it's the same Greek word that we've already had in James 118 remember it talks about God of his own will he begot us with the word of anybody remember the word of truth the gospel of Jesus Christ and so James says this one has wandered from the truth ladies Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life in fact wandering from the truth you know what it calls to my mind? What Peter says, you were like sheep going astray, but now what returned to the shepherd and bishop of your soul. Now, let me say something that might shock some of you, but that's okay. A true believer in Jesus Christ will not permanently wander away from the truth. It's impossible. It is impossible. They can't deny it. There's lots of scriptures we could go through. but That's not my point this evening. I'll just share one with you that we've talked about several times this year. The aged old apostle, 100 years old, John, you know what he wrote? They went out from us, for they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest. They were never of us, never of us. And that's what James is talking about. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth of the gospel... Then he gives him this charge. You go and convert him or someone turn him back, he says. And, you know, I am so grateful that James says here, someone. Do you notice he doesn't call for the pastor to do this? I like this. Or even the pastor's wife. You know, I like it when people call me up and they say, Susan, did you know that, you know, so-and-so is doing, this? I said, well, why don't you go talk to him? You know, I don't have to do your dirty work. You go do your dirty work. It's someone, anyone, you in the congregation, you pursue the one who is going wayward. And, you know, as a pastor's wife, this makes sense to me because, you know, as much as I try to minister to all the ladies in my church, it's impossible for me to become intimately acquainted with every woman in the church. I tried to do that in a former church and that killed me, but I tried. And so some of you know some of the women much more intimately than I do. And you know what goes behind closed doors, probably more than I do. I might not want to know what goes behind closed doors. And so James is calling for the whole church. You go. It's not always the pastor's responsibility or the elders. You go if you know. And ladies, this might mean it's your husband. Maybe it's your husband you need to talk to about his wandering. Or your children. Or a brother or a sister. Or someone in the church. And James says, you go, go after the one whose life is not showing true Christianity. That's what he is saying. You pursue. Now, ladies, very simply, this is a call for believers to evangelize in the church. That's what it is. And you might say, Susan, what is wrong with your theology? Well, the same thing that is wrong with our Lord's theology, and there's nothing wrong with with his theology, right? Remember, don't turn there. Remember the parable of the tares? Remember what Jesus said, the tares are going to grow up with the wheat and we're not going to be able to tell who's who ladies, there's tares in every church. They're in this church too. I hate to tell you they're, they're in this church and they're going to grow up together. And Jesus says, no one's going to know till that day judgment. And then it will be revealed who are the tares and who are the wheats. They both go up together. And the tares are going to be cast into the furnace of fire. And Jesus says there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, if you want to look at that sometime on your own, I would encourage you to look at that parable. Ladies, this is sobering. In fact, three well-known pastors were asked this question. How many people do you think are genuinely saved in your church? You know what the answer was? All three of them well-known pastors. Debbie mentioned one tonight. Fifty percent. Fifty. I asked Doug that in our former church and he said 30. And I'm like, really? Am I one of those, please? I hope so. (laughs) But, you know, there's nothing wrong with those pastors, theology or Doug's, because Jesus said few there be that find it. And, you know, the Greek word there is puny. That's what it means. Puny. Few there be that find it. So that brings me to a question you don't have to answer out loud because there's lots of different churches represented here. Are there some in your church body whose faith you think is suspect? Have you lovingly sought them out? They said, you know, I'm concerned about you. You know, Bible says by their fruits, you'll know them. I'm, I'm just concerned. Your life doesn't seem to be going in the direction of Christ's likeness. Can I help you? Can I talk to you? You know, you don't have to beat them over the head. You go. And James says you go and turn them back. Now, what does this mean? It means you convert. You turn them around. Now, he doesn't say how you do this. But, ladies, you do it with a lot of meekness, a lot of love. You consider yourself. At least you be tempted. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit and lots of prayer. You better pray before, during, and after because you might not be received well. I've I've lost lots of good friends because of this one thing. But you go. You might say, Susan, I can't do that. I'm not adequate enough. Well, good. I'm glad you shouldn't be without Christ You're not. In fact, it was said of Dwight L. Moody after a service, a man came up to him and he said, sir, you made 18 grammatical mistakes in your sermon. And D.L. Moody responded with this. Well, at least I'm using my 18 grammatical mistakes to the glory of God. What about You. So even if you feel inadequate, you don't feel like you know enough Bible, but you just know that there's something not right about this person and you've watched their life for a long time, and you're like, you know, they don't measure up to Christianity. Use your 18 grammatical errors to the glory of God and go and pursue them. You know, I wish we were all like the Apostle Paul in our zeal. You know, he says, now then as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we beg you in Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Or to the elders at the church in Ephesus, he wrote this. Therefore, watch, remember, for three years, three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Or Paul says in another place, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In fact, ladies, you know, some of Jesus's last instructions to us is go, go and make disciples, teaching them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think there is something wrong, and I mean this kindly, there is something wrong with us if we have no desire to go after a deceived brother or a sister if we don't see fruit in their life. You might say, well, Susan, I've done that, and I have gone after those who claim to know Christ, and they don't respond. What should I do? Well, I've done that too. If they're a professing brother, professing brother professing sister in christ and you know that there's known sin that they're unrepentant of then you follow the principles that we've talked about quite often in matthew 18 if they're denying the faith and apostatizing well there's not a lot you can do about that except pray for them and conclude that john what john says they went out from us because they were never of us In my life, I've lost lots of good friends because of this or what I thought was good friends because I warned them about what God says in his word. But, ladies, we must do what is commanded here and what Christ commands us to do. And I do take comfort in this. It's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what's wrong. Peter says that in his epistle to the suffering Christians. And so it's better to go and lovingly warn someone. And even if you are rejected, never stop praying. Never stop praying. In fact, it was interesting. I got a test this week. Teachers always get tests, but a couple, about maybe a couple months ago, I found out that a girl that I discipled maybe 20 years ago was getting a divorce and she now lives in another city. And so the relative that was telling me this, I said, um, well, is this divorce biblical? And she said, no, it's not. And so I knew that I had to do something. I love this. You know, she reminded me of Maggie. She was that passionate, and I thought, this can't. It would be like someone telling me Maggie was getting a divorce. And I thought, this cannot be happening. It's just not happening. And so I sent her a letter, and uh, a week later, I got this seething, long email. like, oh, goodness, I'm in trouble. And I just appealed to her. I said, you know what the word says, and unless your divorce is biblical, I, I'm pleading with you not to do this because you know God's not going to bless. So she encouraged me to call her, and this last week I called her, and then she unfolded the story that she hadn't told her relative, and her divorce was biblical. But you know the interesting thing she said at the end of our conversation? She said, Susan, thank you for loving me enough to call me. Do you know you're the only person that has asked me? And this lady's in another church in another state. But she said, that's genuine love that you would say, you would ask me, is this divorce biblical? Don't do it if it's not. Because you know God's not going to bless. And ladies, that's the reward. You know, you, you go and you lovingly talk to someone. And that is genuine love. You know, you don't let your kids go out in the street and, you know, get run over by a car. You stop them because you love them. And so if we love brothers and sisters or so-called brothers and sisters in the church, that is genuine agape love. Well, what is the concluding charge? Go after those who are wondering. That's your charge, ladies. Then there's a great concluding promise that he ends with. Verse 20, if you do this, know that you turn a sinner from the error of his way and you save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. James says, let him know this is a word of encouragement. You're doing the right thing. This is a good thing. If you convert this woman, this man, if she turns around, This is a great thing. And ladies, the reason I know for a fact that these that he's telling us to go pursue are not genuine believers is because of the word he uses. Think with me what he says. Let him know that he who converts a sinner. Never ever in the New Testament is sinner referred to a Christian. It's always an unbeliever. In fact, let me give you some passages for that. John says, first John 3, 9, whoever is born of God does not sin, does not practice sin. His seed remains in him. He cannot sin. He's born of God. Or how about this one? Matthew nine thirteen. Jesus said this, I did not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. In the parable of the lost sheep, he said this, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one Sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. This is a great one. Romans 5, eight, Paul says this, God demonstrated his love toward us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Paul, he writes this to Timothy, Christ, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. He says, So I know for a fact, James is saying, you go after these guys, you go after these women who profess Christ, but they don't live up to what I've been sharing in this whole epistle. And he says, then, you know, you can be assured that you will convert the sinner. Now he gives two benefits of converting this person. Notice what they are. Number one, you save a soul from death. Now, what's he talking about? Well, the most important thing. You save a soul, you don't save, but you have part in saving a soul from eternal damnation, from death and punishment. Now, it also could refer to physical death because we know, right, if you die spiritually, you also die physically. Ladies, you help in converting this soul and saving their soul from eternal separation from God. In fact, the verb save here in the Greek is in the sense of eternal salvation. In fact, James has already used this term. Remember, he referred to the implanted word, which is what? Able to what? Save your soul. Save your soul. He also told us in James 4.12, there is one lawgiver who is able to what? Save and destroy. Ladies, to participate in saving someone from spiritual death is the greatest act of love that another human can do for another. How will they hear without a preacher? Isn't that what Paul says? How will they hear? Well, notice the second benefit of converting a sinner. Not only will you save a soul from death, but you cover a multitude of sins. Now, ladies, this is not meant in the sense of keeping their sins secret, but in the covering up is in securing of their forgiveness. Listen very carefully. Psalm 32 one says this. This is after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he's praying this prayer prayer of repentance blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered and yet we know the whole right the whole nation knew about David and Bathsheba's sin so we know he's not talking the fact that his sin with Bathsheba was covered up it wasn't that's not what he's talking about Romans or uh, Psalm 85, two says the same thing. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered their sin. And yet this is talking about the nation's captivity and rebellion. It wasn't a secret. Everyone knew the nation of Israel was rebelling. And yet the Psalmist says you've covered their sin. So if it's not talking about hiding a person's sin, what is the covering of the sin here? Well, the covering of the sin is performed by God who covers our sins, ladies, in such a way that they will not be seen. And you notice James calls it a multitude of sins that denotes our whole life in every sin that we have ever committed. Ladies, think back to the time that you gave your life to Christ, whenever that was. Think of all the countless sins that you committed up until that time. It was a multitude, right? In fact, since then, I bet you've committed a multitude too. All those are covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know some people say, well, that's talking about the fact that we're supposed to, you know, we're not supposed to talk about people's sin and we're supposed to hide. Well, there's other verses that talk about that, but that's not what James is saying here. When you help convert this one from the error of his way, you save his soul from death, eternal damnation, and you hide or cover a multitude of sins because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So what is the concluding promise? Well, if this one turns around, you save his soul from death and you hide a multitude of sins. So, I mean, it's like the end. I mean, there's no kissing. There's no greet one another. There's no peace and joy and love and all that. It's like... It's just abrupt. I mean, how unusual for James. I was teaching this a few weeks ago at Memorial Bible Church, and the lady said, you know, the women just think this study's too hard. I was like, well, how do you sugarcoat James? There's nothing to sugarcoat. He's just abrupt. And ladies, James' motive and my motive in this whole study, I mean, I'm having the same struggles that you are having week after week. To encourage you and motivate you to live holy. It's not to condemn you. It's not to beat you over the head every week. But I want to make sure that you have committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I failed you. And I failed my Lord. And I think we were, I was talking today to Pam. I think it was Pam. We must always be examining ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Paul says, examine yourself, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. Paul even said, I beat my body into subjection, least I myself, I fear, Paul says, I'll be a castaway. I fear, Paul says, the apostle Paul feared apostatizing. And so ladies, we must always be examining ourselves. And what I want to do in closing is this, a little bit, something a little bit different. When we think about what he's saying here, that we are to go after those whose lives do not measure up and we're to convert them, we're to talk to them. I want to go over the series of tests, and I don't want you to be thinking about, well, yeah, she doesn't do that, she doesn't do that. No, she really doesn't do that. First of all, I want you to look at your own life, and I want you to answer the questions honestly. You don't have to raise your hand, and you don't have to, you know, if you want to do a little check mark, if you want to do a little column yes, no, and test yourself, you can do that. I think it's a great exercise. But if someone comes to your mind, if you yourself don't come to your mind, praise God for that, But if someone comes to your mind, I want you to have enough love to lovingly, will pray about a time to go talk to them about their soul. And when I bring these out, this is not, this is someone who practices these things. We all stumble in many ways and we all fail in all of these. But if these are habitually not in your life, then something is amiss. Okay, from James chapter 1, do you count your trials with joy? Number two, do you see your trials as something that God is using to perfect your faith and develop patience? Do you ask God for wisdom in your trials, and do you ask in faith? If you don't have too much money today, which none of us do, are you still joyful in what God has provided? If you have a lot of money Today, do you recognize your wealth as a gift from God? Do you see your life as fleeting regardless of your wealth? Do you endure trials? Do you blame God for your temptations? Do you recognize the many gifts that God has poured out on you? And are you grateful? Are you swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to get angry at the word of God or those who are proclaiming it? Have you put away all filthiness and wickedness from your life? Do you receive the word with meekness? Are you a doer of the word or do you just merely audit? Have you been auditing James or are you doing it? Do you continue in the word or are you haphazard in your time with God? Do you keep a tight rein on your tongue? Do you minister to the orphans and the widows? And are you keeping yourself unspotted from the world? Now, that was chapter one. You're saying, woof. Don't worry, chapter two only has a few questions. Chapter two. Do you show favoritism to any class of people, poor or rich? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Is your life characterized by showing mercy? Does your faith show itself by your works? And do you help the destitute brother or sister? That's chapter 2. Now chapter 3. Get that duct tape out. If you have the gift of teaching, have you rushed into that office? If you have the gift of teaching, do you study hard to interpret Scripture accurately? And does your life measure up to what you teach? Do you bless God and curse others with the same mouth? Does your life manifest a life of wisdom? Do you prove yourself to be wise by an upright life? Do you have bitterness, envy, and strife in your heart? When you give others advice, is it pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, or is it earthly, sensual, mnemonical? Are your fruits of righteousness sown in peace? And then chapter four. Are you known as a person who argues? Do you always have to have things your way? Do you pray for selfish desires? Are you a friend of the world? Is your life characterized by humility? Do you submit to God? Do you resist the devil? Do you draw near to God? Do you weep and mourn over your sins? Do you speak evil of others and judge others? Do you make plans without consulting the Lord? Are you proud and boastful? When you know that something is not right, do you do it? And then lastly, chapter 5. Do you live for pleasures on this earth? Are you oppressive towards those who are less fortunate than you? Are you patient towards those who afflict you? During trials or afflictions, do you establish your heart, prop it up, strengthen it? Do you murmur against others during afflictions? Does your yes mean yes and your no mean no? Can your word be trusted? Do you make rash vows? Do you pray in affliction? Do you sing when you're merry? When you're sick, do you call the spiritual leadership to come pray for you? When you are sick, do you search your heart for sin? Do you confess your sins to those that you have wronged? Do you have someone that you're accountable to, someone to pray with, and someone you can share your real struggles with? Are you a woman of prayer? And then lastly, do you go after the sinner? Do you share your faith? Now, if you couldn't answer to the majority of those in a affirmative way, I would encourage you to spend some time with the Lord tonight, find out why. If you could say, well, you know, most of the time I do that, but, the, you know, I could improve in this area, or I miss now and then doing what I should be doing, then... I would say, you know, shore up on those areas. If you said just flat across the the board, no, I don't do any of that. Then ladies, let's talk afterwards. I want to convert your soul and, uh, save your soul from hell and cover your multitude of sins. But seriously, if you really could not answer those in an affirmative way that those things are evident in your life, um, I would encourage you to really examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. So anyway, let's close in prayer and then we're going to have our discussion and, um, Maybe we'll get out a little bit early this evening. Father, I thank you for this study that we've had in this book, and I know it's not been easy, and um, I don't think any of us would say it's been an encouraging study. It's been hard, and it's convicting, and it shows us where we fall short, and Lord, I know that um, each of us has some work probably to do in the privacy of our own heart, And I pray, Lord, if there were some glaring um, responses as we answered those questions that we would be um, quick to convert and turn around and to come back into the conformity of your image and your son and your will for us. Lord, for any of us that might know someone, even in our congregation, um, in the fellowship of Christians that we see not uh, living their life in accordance to your will, I pray that we would do the loving thing to go and to gently warn them. Lord, we do not want to be as Ezekiel. You warned him that um, if we do not go and warn the unrighteous to turn from his unrighteousness, as you told Ezekiel that their blood would be required at our hand. And so, Lord, I pray that um, we would see that as the loving thing to do and not as a mean and hard thing. And so, Father, I pray that you will encourage us as we um, talk together, as we reason together through this final discussion. I pray that you would bring many of the ladies back next week for the salad supper, and, Lord, that that would be a rich time of sharing and um, rejoicing in what you have done in our lives this year. And I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.